The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff, or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for all the good news, tips, techniques, and strategies to get you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. And this is our annual Christmas time program where we talk about the best deals of the year. Well, and also the worst deals of the year of 2011. I have in the studio with me four guests who recently won the best worst, most creative deals of the year at the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati's recent holiday party. Boy, if you missed that, you missed a lot. There was some good education and a lot of fun had at that uh, holiday party. So I want to mark your calendar for next year. But uh, each of the folks who were the winners in our four categories have agreed to join us here on Real Life Real Estate Investing today. We're also, if you would like to share your best deal of the year via email, uh, you can do that by sending it to askvina at gmail.com. We'll be happy to share deals from the rest of the country and the rest of you. And, you know, it's good to celebrate those things as well as uh, just go do them. Now, my first guest is the winner of the Best Deal by a New Investor Award. And, uh, in order to qualify for that award, you have to have been investing in real estate for less than 12 months. And uh, our winner certainly qualifies in that category. Uh, it's Roxanne Pilcher from right here in the greater Cincinnati area. Uh, welcome, Roxanne, to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Thanks, Vina. Um, I don't think Roxanne's mic's on. <laughs> yeah, try again. Thanks, Vina. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, there's. Uh, try, try this we're having a little bit of a of a mic problem here. I can hear you, but the folks out in Radio Land can't. Thanks, Vina. Perfect. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> there we go. Um, now, Roxanne, talk talk a little bit about sort of your path into this whole real estate investing thing. What 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 got you here? Well, I actually retired um, as an RN from University Hospital um, April of 2010. But before I retired. I um, happened to buy a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I actually bought it for my 14-year-old son, and then I read it. <clears throat> and it just really resonated with me. And I had lived, you know, being taxed, you know, with a J-O-B, with a job. And I was looking for something different. And it just really, um, it just really was, seemed like the thing that I should launch into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, you found the local real estate association, obviously. And yeah. uh um, got some education in place as we all need to. And then 
then came the deal. So tell us, tell us about this deal. What, what kind of property was it? What kind of deal was it? Well, it was a wholesale deal. And um, it was in, uh, in a move-up area, which is Westchester. And uh, I have a realtor, Christina Keaton, and we ha- I have a client portal. So it came into my portal. It was an estate sale. And so as Vina always, as you always say, go ahead and make the offer. <clears throat> so I did my calculations and we submitted the offer because you never know what a person's motivation is. Mm-hmm. And magically they accepted the offer well it it wasn't magical I mean they did kind of negotiate and they thought their house was worth more than what it was and we appreciated that and we were actually going to move on and just resubmit the deal but they accepted the offer at the last minute now do you remember what the asking price actually was on that property the um, I don't know what the original was that when it started uh, when the MLS was showing that the price was going down it was at 129,000 uh-huh and what was your offer our offer was um, $80,250. So so in your head as a new investor, you were thinking, wasting my time. Yep. They're never going to take this. This is $50,000 lower yep. than what they wanted. But you know, the whole thing, as you said about motivated sellers, is you don't know whether or not they are going to take it unless you tell them. So uh, what was it about this particular, I mean, there's a million properties in the MLS. What was it about this particular one that attracted your attention and made you thought it might be something that would be a a good deal? Well, with all of my, you know, real estate education, thanks to you, um, I had gone in to do my repair estimates and, you know, the house was was really in good shape. It's in a nice neighborhood, but um, as I found out as I'm, you know, keep going out looking at properties the it, it needed about 20 to thirty thousand dollars in updates mm-hmm. so I thought well I mean let's just go ahead and um, you know like again I did my calculations but it kind of it met my criteria for a wholesale deal it needed a fair amount of work mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so in a state yep. is always a good sign mm-hmm. because you're not working with somebody who is looking to buy the next house yeah. <laughs> you're working with heirs who often are work are looking just to cash out, honestly, of of the property, and then the condition, which it, which you know, in, the nicer the neighborhood, oftentimes the harder it is to sell a property that's not perfect, that's not a perfect move in shape. So you had your agent submit the offer. There was some back and forth that went on. You got it under contract, and what happened next? Um, well, because I'm in a mentoring program, I had a, an experienced person come out and look at the deal and make sure that I had done my repair estimates correctly. And because uh, we had already done the after repair value, which was, you know, it was worth a, uh, between 155 and 160,000. So when he came out and reviewed the deal, he said, you know, it's a go and uh, you got a rocking deal. And he said, now go market it. So I have, um, being a new investor, a small, um, smaller buyer's list than, say, you. <laughs> <laughs> and as I was going down my buyer's list, um, my realtor had um, Facebooked, um, as it turns out, a guru. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he wanted the deal. Mm-hmm. So... Um, we negotiated. He did want to go um, actually quite a bit lower than what I was willing to go. And um, because I'm in the mentoring program, I was able to um, stick to my guns and not move off of my price. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, 
I don't want the folks out in listener land to think that the way one sells a wholesale deal is put it on Facebook because <laughs> that is one of, or have your realtor put it on Facebook in this case. Uh, that's that's certainly one of the ways in which you can market a deal. That is not the only thing you did. No. <laughs> I mean, I, I started calling my buyers, and and and, um, and then and because of the mentoring program, um, I also had backup, and that you know my mentor could help me um, put the deal in front of um, of the buyers, mm-hmm. and then we would split the wholesale deal. But no, I, I was actively calling my buyers and trying to get them to come over to look at the property, mm-hmm. and came to to the RIA meeting. Yes, with the, yes, with we the pitched the deal. Well, I was actually, you know taking my daughter to Virginia to go to college. <laughs> so you were kind enough to help me out. <laughs> yeah. So, so it wasn't, I mean, it happened to sell through Facebook, but that wasn't, I, I just don't want people left with the impression that, oh, all I have to do if I'm going to sell a wholesale deal is put it on Facebook. No. And, she, <laughs> and, and she messaged him. She didn't put the deal on Facebook. Okay. It was a personal message. So, okay. So, uh, finally with you digging your heels in and saying no i know what this is worth and i know i'm a new investor but i also know what it's worth so you're not going to talk me down to making no money on this uh the deal did ultimately close um again to to someone who's if 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 we mentioned their name people would know who it was interestingly enough uh and uh at the end of all of this you ended up making what um, I netted $8,100. Um, I was able to uh, pay back the $1,000 earnest money that I had put down on the deal. And I also had given Christina a bonus because she had shown me dozens of houses at that point. Mm-hmm. So um, so my actual net was $8,100. Nice. So what, given given your experience with this first deal... And you're very calm about it now, but of course it was. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty exciting. <laughs> it was a hair tearing experience. So while it was actually going on, like it is for all new investors who have put their first wholesale deal under contract. Yeah. Uh, what did you learn from this that you would express to those folks out there who are maybe new investors not making offers because they're too afraid? Well, for one, I think that the persistence is just crucial. You just have to hang in there. But I hung in there because I was going to the RIA meetings and I was being around positive people who were doing and had done lots of the deals that I was um, pursuing. So being around people and being supported by, by you know, my mentor and, and all the people at RIA and being in a positive environment and not really listening to the chatter of, oh, the market's terrible, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. And I think that was um, that was crucial and just still continuing, you know, with my education. Okay, so hang in there, get educated. And wherever you are listening from, boy, did I get myself into a sentence there where I had to dangle a part of something. I just could not get out of that thing. <laughs> um, join your local real re- association because there, there are there are re-associations in practically any city that is big enough to have both a gas station and a bar so go find a real uh, go find a real estate association hang around with positive people keep getting educated and just do it so congratulations roxanne thank you Vina. very good check from that first deal and uh, we look forward to having you back next year as just the best deal of the year since you <laughs> will no longer be a new investor uh, we need to take a quick break. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Today we are talking to the winners of the Best and Worst Deals of the Year contest from the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati. If you would like to share your best or worst deal of the year via email, 
go ahead and send it to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and today is our annual holiday show where we talk about some great deals that happened in 2011 to inspire you, listeners, to go out and do great deals in 2012. We're talking today to the winners of the Cincinnati RIA Best and Worst Deals of the Year contest, which happened a couple of weeks ago at the holiday party. Uh, Our next not contestant anymore, he won. (laughs) Our our next guest uh, is the winner of the most creative deal of the year contest. It's Lindsay Coons, who's joining us by phone. Lindsay, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Or sorry, Lindy. That's close enough. (laughs) I'm just going to mispronounce your name in every possible way. That's just my my goal today. Um, Now, Lindy, uh, the most creative deal of the year is always an interesting category because there's some creative stuff that goes on out there in the world and, you know, the creative financing and all that sort of stuff. Um, your deal was more creative in the sense that you saw an opportunity that nobody else saw and then you stuck with it for quite a long time in order to make it happen. So let's start Let's start by talking about what what, what kind of property was this what kind of neighborhood was it what was the what was the goal with the property well it's a just a small home it's a two-bedroom one bath but it's out in claremont county uh just outside of batavia and um it was in very poor condition mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but the way the way i found i just was driving by and i noticed the tall grass which is always a good sign and I wrote down the address and went on to the auditor's website just to look things over. And I noticed a property line went through the house, mm-hmm. which is a bit peculiar. And then I got to looking at the owners of the two partials, and it was two different banks because uh, it was a real estate-owned REO property. And uh, the one bank owned the majority of the house and three-quarters of an acre. And the other bank owned just a basically a thirty foot wide strip, but it went right through the house. Mm-hmm. And I thought, boy, if somebody could buy that thirty foot strip, they would really have a good advantage on buying the other half of the house. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was just too busy with other things. But I told my son in law about it, and he thought, hey, that's a great idea. So he went after it, but it took him uh, almost nine months to track down the bank because the bank that showed on the uh, title had been sold and it had been sold again and all that monkey business but he finally was able to track it down and he was able to buy the 30-foot strip of property for eight hundred dollars which is what the back taxes were now lindy to be clear because i mean i think there might be some listeners sending out there going wait a minute did he just say the property line went through the middle of the house yes To, to be clear that is exactly what happened part of this house sat on one lot owned by one owner and a smaller part of the same house sat on another lot owned by another owner. And you eventually were able to track down how in the world that happened. Yeah, the neighbors told me uh, many years ago when it was all farmland, the farmer had sectioned off uh, four lots for these homes to be built, but he left a 30-foot strip in between two of them to access his field back behind the houses, but then later decided he wasn't going to use that 30-foot access. He went down the street a bit and put his own access in, and had told the uh, owner of the lot that he wasn't going to use it. 
So whoever built the house originally decided to go ahead and build it on both lots, but they were never deeded together. And I guess up through the years, that 30-foot strip of property got left behind as a different owner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is what we call a serious encroachment problem in the yeah. in the real estate yeah. world, because the owner of that 30-foot strip of land could at any time go to the owner of the house and say, take down the part of the house that's on my land. That is correct. And so, so at this point in the story, your son-in-law owns a 30-foot strip of land on which sits 10 feet of house. And somebody else owns the other piece of land on which sits the rest of the house. And then how did it get from your son-in-law to you? Well, he uh, after he got control of the 30-foot strip put in his name, he started going after the rest of the house. And that particular bank was very uncooperative and uh, basically just wore him out. And after almost a year of messing around with it, he got frustrated and said, I'm done. I don't want to do this uh, anymore. And he offered to sell it to me, and I was a little short on money at the time, but he always was making eyeballs at my hot rod Model A Ford that I never did quite get finished. So he and I worked the deal that my Model A Ford was partial payment, or actually the the $800, which he made a nice little profit, um, was down payment on the Model A Ford. Mm -hmm. Then he deeded that piece over to myself, so then I picked up where he left off, and... uh, it was interesting that the uh, realtor who had had it listed had taken it off the market back when my son-in-law notified him of the title problem. So I got a hold of the realtor and made an offer. It was quite low, but the property was in very poor condition. It had needed a full bathroom remodel, and the subfloor was caving in in certain places and had some other problems. But uh, they never did uh, <clears throat> get back. <clears throat> so I, I actually upped the pro- offer, and they still never got any response from the bank. And then out of the blue, the uh, realtor puts it back on the market, which I found very interesting that any realtor of reputation would put a property back on the market knowing he had a title problem. So I contacted them a third time and said, what do you what do you think you're doing? You can't sell the house. You're only selling half of it. So then they took it off the market, and then uh, the bank never would cooperate with me. And then I looked uh, at the house a few months later, and it had a new sign, lease uh, to buy, and I called the number, and here it was an investment company down in the Carolinas who had purchased it from the bank. And they said they buy several properties from this particular bank in bundles. So I guess the bank thought it's a good way to get rid of a troubled property is to stick it in the middle of a bundle of other properties. Mm-hmm, where the bulk buyer won't look at it too closely. Oh, uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I told the investment company they had a little problem since they only owned half the house. But uh, finally, they agreed after looking at all the documentation, and they agreed to sell it to me for what they had bought it for. So it all worked out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So basically, you ended up trading part of a Model A for part of a house. Yes. And then holding out until the people who owned the other part of the house were willing to sell it at a reasonable price. Now, the, the only other thing that they could have done, of course, was to have bought your piece from you so that they could reunite the lots and actually right. own the entire property. So in a sense, although it took a while, it was ki- kind of a sure thing mm-hmm. one way or another. And, you know, you had so, so little money in it uh, that it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a huge risk. I know a lot of people would be, would be very frightened to even get into anything like this because they'd say, well, what if the bank will never sell me the other half of that house? Well, they can't not. 
I mean, either either they got to sell or they got to buy. So um, very interesting situation. And then uh, when you when you purchased the other part of the property, we 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 know you made a trade for the for the first part. Um, How how did you how did you how much was that? How how did you finance it? Um, It was was, the house was only see my offer was fifty two hundred dollars. Is, which is basically what they had paid for it. Mm-hmm. So I was able to get that money from a private lender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not too hard to find people with $5,200 in their IRA. Correct. <laughs> and then uh, what happened after that? After that, um, we did some of the major repairs. I was afraid, uh, I was wanting to do a lease option with a, the uh, tenant fixing it up some, but some of the major stuff we've gotten completed. And actually, we just put it on the market last week as a lease option to buy with repairs. You know, the trim work still needs to be finished up and things like that, the real time-consuming items. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so far, we've had uh, four calls and two lookers, so I'm thinking within the next week or two after the holidays, it should have a tenant and be cash-flowing nicely. Mm-hmm. So once the dust settles from all of this, how profitable is it going to have been? Um, <clears throat> I'm thinking uh, we're going to be right at about 40000 in profit. Okay. Okay. Not not bad for what four or five phone calls over the course of a year. Is it? There you go. <laughs> Just being very patient because I was in no hurry. Okay. And 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 what is the lesson in all of this for our listeners? I think the lesson is that some title problems can actually be an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 again, that goes back to education because we certainly don't want to, we don't want people going out there jumping into properties with title problems that they don't understand the nature of. But in this case, it certainly worked out very very well for you. And congratulations on um, being that knowledgeable and that tenacious about uh, holding out until you um, managed to get control of the entire property. And, and and I assume at some point here you're going to deed them back together, right? Correct. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So that doesn't happen again. All right. Very good. Uh, very much appreciate you being with us today, Lindy. And again, congratulations on your most creative deal of the year win. Thank you, Vina, and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you. Take care. Bye now. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's our best and worst deals of the year award uh, award awardee show. Let's call it that. It's the awardee show. These are the folks who won. Cincinnati Rea's Best and Worst Deals of the Year contest recently and are here to both inspire you and to teach you what you maybe want to be doing out there in the world of real estate. If you have a great deal or a terrible deal from 2011 that you would like to share, you can do that via email at askvina at gmail.com. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. We're talking today to the winners of the best and worst deals of the year from the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati. If you would like to share your big triumph or tragedy of 2011, you can do so via email by sending it to askvina at gmail.com. Now, our next winner, <laughs> and if you, hear, if you heard the air quotes around that, uh, you should know it's because at Cincinnati Rea, uh, many years ago, we instituted a worst deal of the year contest. And I, as part of the worst deal of the year award as part of the contest. And it was because we had so many people coming up and saying, well, the bad deals are actually just as educational, if not more so than the good deals. Now, it's sometimes a category that we have a hard time getting people to compete in. 
because generally the winners, and I will admit that I am a past winner of that uh, of that particular plaque, and I have it displayed up there on my wall, just to remind me to stay humble, uh, are, are the winners because they lost some amount of money on a property, which, you know, it's, it's, it's going to happen if you do enough deals. It's going to be recoverable. However, our winner this year somehow managed to win the award while also making money on his deal. <laughs> Uh, it's Kareem Ellis, who uh, is, a, is a board member and longtime member of Cincinnati RIA. Uh, Kareem, t- talk a little bit about what you do, because that's kind of important to the story here. Okay. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, uh, for the most part, we specialize in doing short sales in this current market. We do a lot of wholesaling, uh, but a majority of the folks we deal with are folks that are in foreclosure. They're motivated sellers. They absolutely have to get rid of that property. Uh, and in this situation here, that's exactly what we had. We had a motivated seller that was going through a divorce situation it was court level uh, pretty nasty knockout drag out fight and when we finally got the house vacant we started to proceed with the actual short sale mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and part of the short sale process is and an important part I, I should say uh, is something called the BPO. Can you talk about what that is? The BPO is actually the most important part of the deal. Uh, when you're dealing with lenders, a lot of times, since they're not local, they have no idea what the value of the property is. Uh, so what they'll oftentimes do, depending on the type of loan, they'll either contract a actual appraiser uh, or they'll get a licensed realtor, one of the two, to go out, take a look at the property, and report back to them the value of the home. Um, at that point, the bank can make a physical decision whether or not they want to entertain the short sale offer that's on the table or if they want to negotiate a higher offer or if it's just in their best interest to foreclose on the property and try to get rid of it themselves. Uh, our job as investors that are doing short sales is to basically meet that appraiser at that BPO and beat the value of the property up. Uh, legally, however, we can. So our job is to try to point out all issues and flaws, anything about the neighborhood that they may not be aware of, in an attempt to drop the value low enough that the bank says we physically do not want to take this house back. Mm-hmm. Now we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna come back to the issue of the BPO <laughs> because that's that's where the story here lies. But let's 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 talk a little bit about the numbers on this particular property. What what was it worth? What were you trying to get it for? Okay. Uh, originally, the mortgage payoff on this was seventy-two thousand. It was a, a cute little three-bedroom, uh, one. Uh, I'll consider it a one bath, the half basement, half bath in a basement doesn't really count. Uh, brick ranch, one car attached garage, bread and butter neighborhood, and Mount Healthy. Uh, basically, for the most part, it needed really a trash out. Uh, the homeowner had downsized, moved to a nursing home. Uh, needed paint, patch, and carpet in most of the bedrooms, uh, along with the living room and dining room. And needed an updated kitchen and updated bath. Uh, other than that, that was basically it. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, the the problem with these properties and the reason there needs to be a short sale and a BPO and all those sorts of things is that it probably was worth seventy two when it was in perfect shape, yeah. and it was five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but. <laughs> It probably not probably would not sell for that now, particularly in that condition so at at what price were you trying to get it the The original offer when we do short sales uh, because we're playing both sides of the fence. Uh, I am a licensed realtor. Uh, and our company is actually initiating the short sale as well. So we're kind of playing both sides of the, the fence, so to speak, when we're dealing with the bank. Uh, our original offer on this was, I believe, was like $8,000. We gave it to them really, really low. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that wasn't your goal price, but it was mm-hmm. sort of a starting. It's a startup uh, price. It, 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 you were certainly nowhere near 72, but yeah. eight was was. Yeah. probably a lower offer mm-hmm. than than what you needed to make to, to happen in order to make money mm-hmm. so let's go back to this bpo <laughs> <laughs> um 
to set the stage here, you're, you you always meet your BPO agent. This yeah. person would be somebody who was unrelated to you or your company. You may often have not mm. met this person. Uh, so so you walk in with the um, with the goal to charm them, make a connection with them. And at the same time, be able to point out everything that's wrong with the property in case they missed it. So take us from what happened from there. Okay. What, what ended up happening was she actually gave me a call spur at a moment on a Friday. Uh, it was around, I want to say, 10 o'clock in the morning. She basically said, hey, I need to get this BPO uh, done, performed, and back to the bank within 24 hours. Uh, a lot of uh, realtors out there that do BPOs, if they don't return them within a certain time frame, they get docked on the amount of money they're going to make on the BPO, or they can lose that potential lender as a client for future BPOs. So the one thing you don't want to do is botch that BPO or cause that person to miss out on their money. Now, when I meet the young lady out, uh, she's uh, close to around maybe four foot, mm, thinking four foot eight, four foot nine. She's not the tallest person in the world. Um, with with meeting a lot of folks in this arena, uh, especially when it's male to female and they're alone, there's always some standoffishness. They want to make sure they're in a safe, secure environment. Uh, my job at that point immediately became, hey, make her feel comfortable being inside this vacant property by yourself. Uh, so as we're going through the room, I'm picking up her arm gesture, you know, the, the, the folded arms, let me know she's not comfortable. I'm walking into the rooms first. Uh, one of the things I want to do is leave the front door wide open so if she felt panicky, she could actually just leave out the house. And as we proceed through the BPO, we get her to the point where she's getting a little bit more comfortable. We get down to the basement. We're hitting it off and we're talking numbers and pointing out issues and flaws. And that's where everything goes awry. Uh, what ends up happening is in the middle of talking, she says, Ray, I think I hear something upstairs. Now, for those of you that are constantly going into properties, you know that when we go in these houses, a lot of times the neighbors will see us go in. They want to be nosy, figure out what's going on. So I'm assuming it's nothing more than a neighbor trying to figure out what's going on with the house. Uh, as I approach the basement steps, mind you, the power's out. Uh, I happen to look at the staircase and I see two red dots along the staircase wall. My mind is so disconnected from what's going on. I'm not realizing what these red dots actually are. Um, two seconds later, I found out we have Mount Healthy's finest <laughs> two police officers at the top of the step. And they're basically yelling out, freeze, don't you move. Put your hands on your head now and come up the steps. And as I'm trying to explain to them that I'm supposed to be here, um, I'm, I'm barraged with a bunch of shut ups. <laughs> Keep your hands on your head. Get up the steps. Get up the steps. And the funniest thing to me was the, the BPO agent who was out of line of sight. She got really, really quiet because they didn't know she was there with me. So I'm looking at her saying, OK, you're just going to kind of hang me out the dry so I can sit here by myself. Um, as we make our way up the steps with our hands on our head, we make our way into the living room and they physically arrest us. They put handcuffs on us and we're trying to explain to them we're supposed to be there. Uh, the big dilemma being is we don't have any of our uh, information on us. We don't have any of our identification. Everything is in our cars. Uh, what ends up happening is that while I'm handcuffed, I'm getting a phone call from an actual homeowner who's actually in Indianapolis. Uh, the neighbors who ironically called the police because what they thought is we broke into the property to steal copper. <laughs> called me while I'm locked up and I'm trying to get to the phone to let her know that, hey, you know, let them know I'm I'm supposed to be here. Uh, finally, the police end up believing us based on the fact that they looked at the appraiser's clipboard. So they saw the measurements of the house and whatnot. Uh, come to find out they had called in two backup squads. Uh, they said basically they walked through every room in the house trying to find us. They couldn't figure out where we were. They figured out eventually we were in the basement. Uh, they didn't want to go down blindly, which I can respect. Uh, so they called out to us several times. We didn't respond back. And they made it known that the next time they called out, if we didn't make our way to the steps to come on up, they were actually going to let the police dog down. And sure enough, when I go to the window with the handcuffs on, there's a police dog in the back of the cruiser barking. 
Uh, so eventually, you know, after they hit their, their kicks and giggles, they went ahead and uh, released us from the, uh, the handcuffs. And, and the way the story ends is that standoffishness that me and that appraiser had, uh, I come to find out that when you are physically locked up together and arrested, uh, that forms a bond that <laughs> nothing in this world is going to break at this point in time. Uh, so she actually appraised the house at $12,800, and it was an FHA short sale, FHA guidelines state. Uh, they're allowed to take 88% of the appraised value. So basically the bank was going to let this thing go at $10,560. <laughs> okay. Um, sorry, everybody in the studio is laughing so hard. <laughs> We're trying to be really quiet so that Kareem can finish his story. <laughs> but uh, so, so the bad news is arrested for stealing copper arrested when you're copper. in fact doing a BPO. The good news is... The agent walked out of there going, whatever, I'm just going to put whatever he tells me down on this piece of paper. I don't. And then I'm going to go home and take a Valium and try and forget that this ever happened. And that's basically the gist. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, 12 at, uh, at the at the eventual purchase price of, of $10,500, you did, in fact, make money on the deal. But worst deal of the year, because uh, I think you're the only person that I have ever known that was arrested <laughs> for doing a BPO. Well, well, the hardest thing about this deal at the end of it all uh, would have been when I started to shop this to my buyer's list. I started thinking, okay, if I send these folks over blindly with a lockbox, am I going to get a phone call saying, get me out of here? I just got arrested at this property. And so I I would leave little blatant messages for the folks going over there. If anything happens whatsoever, call me immediately. (laughs) Yes. And and despite what happened to Kareem, a big shout out to the Mount Healthy Police for actually caring about copper theft. Because (laughs) the first thing I, I thought when I heard that was, in how many communities could you call the police and say, I think somebody might be stealing the copper? And they'd actually show up while it was still going. On so, um, Mount Healthy Police bad for making assumptions, good for caring about copper theft. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much, Kareem, and congratulations on winning the worst deal of the year, despite the fact that you made a bunch of money on the deal. <laughs> uh, we're going to take another quick break, and then we're going to get to the best deal of 2011. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host. Bina Jones Cox. Today we're talking about the be- the, the uh, best and worst deals of 2011 with the winners of the best and worst deal awards from Cincinnati RIA. Uh, by the way, if you are not a Cincinnati RIA member and uh, you miss this this uh, this contest, uh, these these categories were largely very competitive. There were there were many other folks that uh, had great deals, creative deals. Uh, there were even even another couple of worst deal uh, contestants this year. And those meetings are very educational. So check out CincinnatiRia.com to join the group, come to some meetings, etc. If you are if you are the leader of a real estate association somewhere else in the country and you would like to uh, institute a best and worst deals contest at your own group and you'd like to know how we set ours up, what the rules are, uh, how we um, control it and so on, uh, send me an email, askvina at gmail.com and I'll be happy to send you uh, Cincinnati Rios rules because it's a it's a good thing to do at your holiday meeting or really uh, any time of year. Uh, so best deal of the year, the that coveted coveted plaque went this year to Mike Brown. No, not that Mike Brown, Cincinnatians. Uh, the Mike Brown who uh, is a Cincinnati Rio member. Uh, 
little bit newer to the real estate business than a lot of our our best deal contestants were, but uh, did a deal that as soon as I heard the deal before the contest even happened, I said, Mike, you are going to win this category. There is no question about it. So uh, let's talk about the kind of deal because this is a little bit different than the typical single family home deals that we hear about in these contests. Sure. What what I was uh, purchasing was commercial properties and specifically multifamilies. And uh, I was looking at apartment complexes that were 100 units plus. Mm-hmm. And, and, and let's say, again, for the purpose of hopefully inspiring some of our listeners, this was your first commercial deal. This, Correct. This deal that you're about to describe and talk about how much it netted was not, this is not the, the result of 20 years experience buying these 100 plus unit buildings. This was number one. So tell us about the, the, the specific property that you talked about at the Best Deals Contest. Sure. The specific property that I bought, uh, I reviewed numerous projects, but uh, it's in greater Cincinnati. It's, uh, in a, it's a B-class property, which means it's uh, 90s construction or newer. Uh, it's in a B-plus area, uh, which just says it's in a good area. This happened to be Westchester, but it's an affordable housing uh, property, and it's 100 units. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And was th- was this one, because I mean, many times when we have uh, uh, folks come on Real Life Real Estate and talk about buying commercial properties, uh, they talk about there's a, there's a whole spectrum when you buy a property between it's completely vacant and needs an enormous amount of work, and it's completely occupied and needs absolutely nothing. And what you're going to pay varies widely depending on uh, what kind of shape it's in. So, so this particular property was it up and running? Needed some stuff? What 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 kind of shape was it? Yeah, in? great question. Uh, it was a performing property. It was a hundred percent occupied, uh, no empty uh, units, and you know it needed minimal amount of work, and it was really just. Uh, uh, capital improvements, replacing some uh, AC units and doors. You know, obviously, when you say that, you multiply it by a hundred. But uh, you know, that's it was uh, not a large amount of money to replace it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how did you find the seal? Because you mentioned you had been looking at a number of different properties like this. How did this one come on your radar? Uh, commercial world, most stuff happens with uh, personal relationships with brokers. It's called a, a pocket listing. So uh, through my communications and working the brokers, letting them know what I wanted, uh, this opportunity was brought to me. And, uh, you know, you analyze it. Then you try to determine if there's upside. Can you increase income or can you minimize expenses to make it an even better deal? Mm -hmm. And it was in that initial analysis, because in the commercial world, there's often two. There's the, okay, here's the piece of paper. Does anything here make sense at all? And if it does, then there's the, okay, now let's look at it and, tr- and truly dig down into the numbers. Um, in that analysis, you, you, you did find that somebody in the process didn't understand their own numbers. Well, you know, there was a couple opportunities I saw. One, they were using data that was almost 24 months old because it had been for sale for a while. Therefore, they were uh, under they were discounting the income by about 50,000 a year and they were overstating expenses. There was things that they were including that they weren't even being charged like marketing. There wasn't actually any marketing being charged. And uh, you know, there was a water issue where we have Blue Max pipe is just defective. And they were overstating the uh, water by fifty thousand a year. So, the net difference came out to being about a hundred, a hundred and fifty thousand a year 
between the income and expense improvements I could make. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they they were saying that the gross income was one number, but you knew that it 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 was higher and could be made even higher than that by about a hundred thousand dollars. Now, again, for folks who listen to the show regularly and hear the people like Anthony Chara and Charles Dobbins who come on here and talk about evaluating multifamily properties, a uh, hundred thousand dollars a year in increased income, roughly is a million dollars in increased value. Yeah, you generally want to multiply it by 10. Mhm. So, that's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> that's right to the bottom line. <laughs> yeah, the the uh, and I assume that the asking price was was more based on what they thought the numbers were than what you discovered. Correct. That the numbers yeah. were. I mean, more often than not what I've been finding is most of the properties are trading below their replacement value. So it is based off of income. In this case, they were understating the income by over a million dollars. So what was the asking price? Uh, they started out in the five million range. Uh, when I saw it, it was approximately four point two million. Okay, so they had come down to four point two million, and then what was your offer? Uh, well, obviously it was much lower to begin with. It started out in the twos, uh, but eventually we got more realistic and ended up at about three six. Okay, so again, there's a lesson here about asking price versus what people will actually take, and and the numbers you're throwing out there are really big. I mean, you know, Roxanne actually had some similar numbers, and if you just if you just look at it as a percentage of of value, you just added another couple of zeros onto this place. They're asking 4.2 and you end up at 3.6. Now, the scariest thing for most people in thinking about commercial properties is how in the world am I going to get $3.6 million? Well, first off, you build relationships with a good banking system. (laughs) (laughs) Because whether you're buying your own house or uh, an investment property, they're going to come up with the biggest percentage of it. Uh, in this case, they came up with 80%. And then I had to come up with the the rest of the down payment. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is still sizable. 20, oh, 20% of $3.6 million is still a heck of a lot of money. But in the commercial world, it's very rare that the, the, the owner or the partners actually write that check. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you find great opportunities. Many times you'll find investors that are also interested in those opportunities. And when you share that with them, everybody benefits. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in this particular deal, because you were a first-time investor and because for reasons that if people want to know about it, they can go back to the podcast and listen to the stuff about commercial properties, uh, you actually got a partner in this deal who had more experience and who had some things that banks wanted to see uh, before they uh, before they write big loans like this. Um so, so bottom line is, whatever came out of this, you had to split, and I bet that was just terrible. Yeah, I laughed all the way to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> so what were the bottom line numbers when all the dust settled? Uh, the bottom line numbers are for residual income, um, my portion would be six figures, uh, somewhere between 100000 and 150000 per year, mm-hmm. and his would be the same. Mm-hmm. And then there's some equity, too, we think. Yeah, well, uh, with those... Uh, <laughs> improvements that I was able to make quickly without doing anything on the numbers, uh, we were able to increase the value by approximately $2 million. But you had to split it. Yeah, so I only end up with a million. Yeah, why did they give you that award? I just, jeez, honestly. Yeah, so first, first commercial deal... A million dollars in equity, and when when stabilized, somewhere between one hundred and one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year in income, which, by the way, is uh, would put you what high, high middle class if that was the only property you ever owned in your entire life and ever did ever again. I mean, you're making way more than the average income for an American on just that one deal. So, 
of course you are going to win in that category and much deserved and congratulations. What in, in about a minute can you tell folks who might be sitting out there going, well, I kind of like to get into commercial properties in the way of advice? First off, there's great opportunities in this marketplace. Uh, the other thing I would say is knowledge. You need to get experience, and you can get that through uh, many sites. And uh, on the website, you can get additional information. I'd suggest going to your RIA group. But the other thing is as well, um, it takes hard work. And, you know, deals don't fall in your lap in the beginning, so you got to go out and try to find them. And then it's more fun to do it with other people, so partner with other people. Okay. Absolutely wonderful. And congratulations again, Mike, for your win in best deal of the year category. And uh, very much appreciate all of you uh, coming in today and sharing your experiences in 2011. Those of you out in listener land, next year we want you to have the best deal of the year. So make a New Year's resolution. Get out there and do something. Because if you do something and do it often enough... It's going to result in great deals like this. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.